Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Now, this is another of our conference takeaways. We are coming at you live from the end of day one at the 2018 Festival of Education that is held in Wellington College. And I am joined today by a very special co-host. He's a, uh, a regular member on the podcast, making his third appearance, Mr. Chris Bolton. Hello, Chris. Hello, Craig. It's good to be here. How are you? Really good. This is, uh, for me, the highlight of the education calendar. This speaking to me or just uh, the event in general? Do you know what? At this point, both. Both. <laughs> but this that, only comes once a year. That's true. That is very true. Now, are you a bit of a regular at the Festival of Education? Have you you've been a few times? Yeah, in my first year, I remember a couple of uh, friends from the Teach First cohort had, had gone. Didn't know anything about it and then they were talking about it. It sounded great. And then I've been ever since from 2013 onwards and Jeez. was lucky enough to be invited to speak in 2014. And I've spoken every year as well, which has been a, a real pleasure. Nice. And people are describing it as the Glastonbury of uh, education conferences. It has got a bit of a feel, like a festival feel to it. I would it? say that is true. Um, I don't know if they did it this year, but it was either last year or the year before. There were yurts. <laughs> nice. You could go glamping. Nice. Yeah. It's lovely. People are sat on kind of straw bales and music's playing. It's it is wonderful. beautiful. There were stands. People are handing out free glasses of Chablis. Nice. More could you want? And the weather's beautiful. And we should say it for is. listeners, just to make you even more jealous, we're currently sat in, <laughs> what is it, the Master's Garden? Is that? This is the Garden of the Master's Lodge, yes. And it's just a sunny shine. And there's rumours that there are deer kind of bombing around. Yeah. And behind us, we've got kind of all the big names of the education world. We've got David Didow, Carl Hendrick, Paul Kirshen's just shown up. Amanda Spielman's there. It's just... It's just wonderful. So me and Chris are just going to chat about our reflections of the day and we'll start off with the first session that you actually ran yourself Chris. So what was that about? Tell us a little bit about it. Sure, so it was part of the Research Ed Strand. Tom Bennett asked if I'd run a session on direct instruction and because it was Research Ed I decided I should probably focus a bit more on the research and the evidence. Uh, In 40 minutes there's only so much you can do and DI is is so big and so interesting. So I kicked off with a really important point, which is that any direct instruction practitioner, anybody who's developed a program of direct instruction through empirical means, uh, names that keep coming back to me are Siegfried Engelman, Michelle Thomas, John Mighton, they all have this deeply held belief that 100% of children can learn. And where if you hold up two classrooms side by side and you say that in one classroom, um, sort of random percentages of kids are going to be successful on any given day and on in the other classroom 100% of them are going to be successful every day most of us would look at that and say that's because you've got two classrooms with different children in them these are all people who believe that the difference is in the teaching same children different teaching so that's where it, it comes from um, I, I give a bit of a, a live demonstration which you can't really do on audio as to how how their methods work and why that leads to this belief that everyone can be successful. And then off the back of that, ran into, because it was research ed, lots of the evidence in its support. Um, decided to take four different routes, um, four different avenues which kind of converge together. The first is the sort of empirical research base. So when it's been trialed out and you look at effect sizes, John Hattie famously um, says that by the time, invisible learning, he said that when, by the time 
new teachers, trainee teachers have come to him, they've already been indoctrinated, his words, indoctrinated with the mantra, constructivism bad, sorry, constructivism good, direct instruction bad, mm. and they are then shocked and then angry when he shows them the actual results from mm. the, the meta-analyses. Um, it has an effect size of 0.59 in visible learning, 0.6 in more recent research. And he categorizes it as one of the most effective um, things that you can do as a teacher. Off the back of that, you've got the, then the original research from Project Follow-Through, which we've discussed before. But then I pointed out that, I mean, to be fair, it's difficult to run um, empirical trials like this in a school environment, lots of variables, hard to control for. But actually, with DR, you've also got if you just look at the research, sorry, the principles coming out of cognitive science from laboratory-controlled uh, trials, um, in which we can have a lot more faith and a lot more confidence, much easier to control the variables. Direct instruction was developed completely independently of the cognitive science. It wasn't built on that framework, and yet the two perfectly marry up. Mm. Uh, the, the recommendations from direct instruction are perfectly in line with the recommendations from cognitive science. For me, that's telling you something special is going on. The third point was that just a logical analysis. When you unpick how it works, you look at it and realize, well, how could it, how could it not work? How could this fail? That's partly what the demonstration early on was uh, for. So it, it just makes sense. When you learn how it actually functions, you'd be surprised if it didn't work. So you've got this empirical uh, research base in its favor. It's in line with the recommendations from cognitive science, all of them, insofar as I've been able to determine so far. And on top of that, it, it makes perfect sense. The mechanism makes sense. And then finally, I just ended with uh, a few anecdotes from different, from different um, teachers who've applied this really effectively. Uh, I've talked about my own classroom before. Tom Needham, who I saw uh, research at rugby a week or two ago, um, he offered fantastic, just, a, just an anecdote. One student on, um, <clears throat> on the thinking reading program, went for, which is a direct instruction-based reading program, in a year, but actually 30, 40-minute sessions across that year went from a reading age of 8.5 to 15 years. Jeez. She went from reading like an 8.5-year-old to a 15-year-old. I think it's good to know you've got all that sort of data and evidence backing stuff up, but when you hear just little stories like that, that's when people go, hang on a minute, wait, what did he say? Um, and then he tweeted out saying he was getting, you know, just again anecdotally, really high um, success rate when he'd been trying this out, better than other stuff he'd done. Uh, Naveen Rizvi was very uh, generous sharing a couple of 30 second clips from her own class, from her students' work, and seeing what uh, students who've uh, started the year uh, not knowing very much about fractions at all, in a, at bottom of a bottom set, mm. um, now what they can do and the speed with which some of them can do it, they're, they're, they're fluent. They're, it's automatic they know what to do and it's just extraordinary um so yeah that's that's and then that was pretty much all we had time for and i couldn't go into any of the details about how to achieve it <laughs> so <laughs> well, that was the session well it sounds fascinating as, as i said you are sat next to a lady who absolutely loved loved your session two two quick questions chris yes. um mark mccourt a, a fellow mm. a mutual friend and uh, uh previous guest on the podcast he's concerned that direct instruction and explicit instruction is getting banded around mm. by a lot of people and it means a lot of different things mm. to a lot of different people this what you're talking about is it is a specific type of direct instruction yeah right? so in the session i did actually say, start up front with um what barack rosenshine's got a paper which everyone should just read it's very short 2008 five meanings of direct instruction and this is him just going through research literature and seeing how people are talking about it and one of them is uh, academics 
as describing anything that a teacher does sometimes as being direct instruction. Mm. That's useless to us. Let's ignore that. Yeah. You've then got the people who are talking about it as a pejorative term, uh, conjuring up austere, cold uh, images of yes. grand grindy and faded sapia images yep. of Victorian classrooms. Let's ignore that. That's not nonsense. That's not what direct instruction is. If I mean, the, the problem we've got is, is a bit of a PR problem. That's all it is. But it, it's not that. And then you've got um, three more that he mentions, but really you can group them two ways. One way, interestingly, we've seen repeat at least three times now. The first time happens in the 50s when a guy called Nathaniel Gage is a lecturer, sparkling personality in everyday life, terrible in front of his students, really wants to improve, goes to the research literature, he's an academic, goes to the research literature to figure out how to improve, realises that the research literature is on things like um, does a teacher's strength of grip improve their teaching performance? It was... The, the, the state of the situation in the 50s was worse than it was today. So he kicks off a program of research, which is just going to people's classrooms, videotaping them, finding the best teachers, and then going analysing those videotapes to see what it was that they were doing. This will sound very familiar to anybody who knows anything about Doug Lamov's work with Teach Like a Champion. So this was done in the 50s. It was done again in the 70s and 80s in the um, teacher effects research, uh, sometimes referred to as this process product research. It was the same thing again. Teachers put into groups. They are... Um, you then, so the, the, you, you try to make sure that all these different, basically your groups are controlling for um, context and all those different things. You're trying to control some variables. And then once you've done that, you give the kids a baseline and a, um, a post-test. And then you look, right, where are lots of kids making lots of progress? Great, these teachers. Now let's look back at all the video tapes that we have of those teachers teaching, compare them to the other tapes. Let's see if there's anything these teachers have in common. Oh, there is. So it's a correlational study. There's lots of things that correlate with this high performance. Um, and so this is the list of the things that they're doing. And it's a, it's a very similar list, similar list to what you get from Nathaniel Gage. And it's a similar list to what you get, again, in the uh, late noughties, sort of early teens, or is it tweens, I forget now, <laughs> from Doug Lamov. Same thing again. And that's a version of direct instruction, but it's a bit loose. It'll be recommendations mm. like um, make sure you've got, start each lesson with a period of... Um, Retrieval practice yep. or a recap of the last lesson. Do that then every week, every month. It, uh, make sure that there's guided independent, uh, guided instruction at some point. Make sure there's independent practice at some point. So it, it's still, that's like really quite an open form yes. of direct instruction. Um, Greg Ashman often refers to that more as just a highly interactive, explicit instructional methods. Yes. Which is fine. Then the big one um, is Siegfried Engelman's direct instruction program. Uh, highly... In, in terms of the program itself, highly prescribed, um, remarkably rigorous. For almost anything you could imagine, there is an answer for what you should be doing yes. at various different points. And uh, therefore, it's also incredibly technically dense. It's just taking me a very long time to unpick it. Once you unpick it, it's actually not that hard to explain to other people. He hasn't done a great job of doing that, I think, in theory of instruction. So, and I'm still working on unpicking it all but once and we get there in terms of effectiveness Chris does it go for Engelman's is the most effective then when you kind of remove mm. some of the more prescribed elements and get to the, the version you were talking mm. about before it becomes less effective is it, is it it's a good question kind of linear as that I, I'm not sure uh, genuinely what, what's your instinct I get, if I go back to the idea of the logical analysis of Engelman's work and, and, and the, the sort of the, what's going on technically underneath the hood it's very difficult to look at it and think, yeah, I'm not going to bother doing that. Mm. I'm going to do something different. Because the whole thing is put together such that if you do these things, then it is logically faultless, um, is the idea. It's almost, not completely, but almost impossible for what you want to be understood to be sort of misinterpreted. Yes. Um, 
However, and okay, so that might go wrong for a number of reasons. So it's not actually you know, perfect, perfect. But then there are strategies for dealing with that. But what is really important is if you imagine removing any one of those, you can instantly see how it'll go wrong. And you can demonstrate how it'll go wrong. So, I, and on that basis, I'm not then sure why you wouldn't do those things that are recommended when and where it is appropriate yes. it's different things for different things that you're trying to teach well that leads me to our last question on your session and that was something I was talking about with Tom Sherrington mm. when I interviewed him and he said and he, a really nice analogy this he said that kind of good instruction for him is almost like a vitamin pill in the sense that you need little bits of each vi- each vitamin so mm. you need a little bit of vitamin A a little bit of vitamin B and he, he, he drew the parallel with um, a bit of inquiry a bit of project based work a bit of independent investigation and you only need a little bit but if that's completely missing it's a really poor mm. diet it's quite serious well, mm. what's your take on that or do, do we not do we not need those aspects and, what, and in the Engelman model are, the, are those part, bits part of it or not I'm not sure what the answer is yet but I can give you some insight into where my head's at mm, currently sure. I'm still working on it so first of all uh, I think Daisy tweeted out something yesterday which I only looked at it briefly but I think the headline was that this was a piece of research that had been done only a few years ago that demonstrated how answering closed questions, simple closed questions, led to greater performance on complex cognitive tasks further down the line. Right. So the idea, so you run the risk, there's definitely a risk that you look at the outcome and what we want people to be able to do and assume that that's therefore what the input must necessarily look like, that yes. you can't get this output without that input. So that's a risk that we definitely need to bear in mind. Um, then there are perhaps then another thing I bear in mind is um, Daniel Willingham's written about how reading strategy is really bad. We're wasting lots of time on them. Um, teaching critical thinking really bad. We're wasting lots of time on it. But within that, he still says the reading strategy programs have shown that if you do it for about ten hours, you do get some sort of boost. Uh, beyond that, you don't. Mm. And you know, they're waste- in America. They're wasting I think two hundred hours a year on this stuff, uh, year on year. But still, you've got that initial 10 hours, right? So there is a part of me that wonders how much of this is less either or and more an apportioning of time. Mm. But the apportioning of time might be um, 10 hours in a year, yes. for example. Yes. And, but, but that is not to say that... So then, then the next problem is, okay, but for which things is that true? For example, is 10 hours of project-based learning a year going to be useful? Yes or no? Is 10 hours of inquiry learning a year going to be useful? Yes or no? I don't have an answer to that yet. And then the final thing I bear in mind is that something I, I blogged about, which virtually nobody read uh, <laughs> a few weeks ago, which was the, the distinction between... Um, so while so you, you, can dis, you can distinguish uh, many of the subjects in school between disciplinary and substantive content, uh, where they are disciplined. So what is the the knowledge content and what is our knowledge of the past and history what is our knowledge of mathematics our knowledge of nature from science and then the disciplinary content would be okay but how do we know that Mm. so what is it that scientists and historians do etc to get that and while there's sometimes been too much focus on trying to teach the disciplinary knowledge and actually being an effective scientist historian mathematician is probably a function of an inordinate amount of um, substantive content if I, i do wonder if you have none of the disciplinary you've never even seen it 
then you maybe just don't understand what those people do with their lives. Mm. So most people seem to have a you know, a reasonable idea of what a scientist do. They're usually a bit far away from the reality. You imagine a hero, sort of um, Tony Stark figure, <laughs> just genius inventor who single-handedly invents yep. everything, rather than teams of hundreds of people across the world collaborating very slowly. But at least you've got an idea of what that looks like. Whereas with maths, nobody seems to understand what professional mathematicians do. You get the classic, so what, you do you do sums all yeah, day? Like, yeah, what is it? Yeah. And that's probably because we do virtually nothing. Like, we don't even just, like, show students what it looks like to do mathematics, what mathematicians look like. So there's, maybe there's something in there to say, at the very least, like, we're not trying to get them to be mathematicians. That's too much too soon from the vast majority of people. But we can at least show them what that yes. looks like right we can um let's point them in that direction so they've got an idea i don't know if there's merit to that yet and so yeah there's, there's some sort of balancing thing going on somewhere which is fine but that but then i don't in me saying that i don't want to fall into the trap and i prefer others didn't fall into the trap of thinking oh balance great 50 50 that's yes, fair and balanced yes, right yes yes because uh, it's probably not it you know it could be a balance your pivot point way over at one end and the balance is 99.9 percent versus 0.1 percent so my head's a bit all over with that still, but that's where it is right now. Got it. Well, that sounds a, a fascinating session, though, Chris. So session one, I went to uh, Professor Becky Allen's. And what I should say here is my one of my aims for this conference was to see people I've never seen before. So Becky, I've communicated with her on Twitter, but I've never actually met her in person. And um, her title of her session was What If We Cannot Measure Progress? And that just hooked me in straight away because... I interviewed Tom Sherrington on the last podcast and he was talking about the perils of, de- of data and he was of the opinion that we, we can't really measure progress from data in the way schools do. So I thought, right, I need to, need to uh, go and hear what Becky's got to say about it. So I'm going to fire a few things at you here, Chris, and see what, sure. see what your take is. So the first point that Becky made was that all tests are noisy measures of attainment. Yep. And I really, really like that. And she made the point that commercially available tests that we use, and particularly this tends to be in mathematics, or it might be even taking an assessment from like the White Rose scheme or Complete Maths or something like Mm -hmm. that. They're short tests, so there's lots of noise going on. And she uh, presented a really interesting diagram that showed that if you are just making high stakes decisions, and this could be set changes or reporting to parents based on single tests, because of the noise that's involved, Mm. because a short test can only measure a very narrow domain, um, you can get kids in like set two doing worse than kids in set five and then Mm -hmm. you kind of overreact and oh we've got to rejiggle all our sets and stuff but it could just be the noise within the test do you think that's that's a fair point yes yeah, I was up for that one I'm, as well. I'm very unlikely to disagree with anything that Professor Becky Allen says. <laughs> um, but I, mean, I, I would recommend that all teach. I, I don't know how much more difficult this is to read if you don't have a maths background, but Daniel Corretz, Measuring Up, is my number two most important book for all teachers to read. Really? Because I was shocked at how much I didn't understand the nature of assessment. And the, the things that we say between ourselves as teachers, things like, uh, or even as a student, you know the test is unfair because, oh, if only that other question had come up, yes, I would have got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, um, you know, as a teacher, we then feel the same way for our students. This doesn't reflect what I've seen them do in the classroom, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah. Et and, and I was very much in favor of things like, um, yeah, maybe we need a portfolio assessment, something that can better reveal student strengths. And it, it wasn't until I read Corrit's book, he, he just takes you through what it means to try to measure this invisible thing we call learning and it, it is it, it's extraordinary it's extraordinary it's extraordinarily revealing it really transformed my view of testing and assessment and um it acknowledges that all those problems exist but 
they're to some extent currently with our current technologies intractable yes. maybe that'll change in the future but things like portfolio aren't the solution for various reasons that Rob Coase talked about as well and also this is something that Dylan Williams shown us before he's got a, a brilliant slide that I sometimes use in training on assessment where uh, he, he just sort of shows so basically um, with I think something like a GCSE or an A level has a reliability of about 0.85 barely 0.9 even um, now the first problem we have is most like, teachers are not trained to understand what is meant by reliability so for anyone who doesn't know what that means it's like stepping onto a cheap set of bathroom scales this is a Daniel Corritz uh, metaphor and it tells you that you weigh 25 stone and then you step off and you get on again and it tells you that you weigh 20 stone you step yeah. off and you get on again it tells you that you weigh 3 stone and each time it's a different measurement so yes. it's completely unreliable but if you keep stepping on and it tells you you weigh 25 stone again and again and again and again it's not correct it's not valid but it is reliable it will reliably tell you the wrong, uh, the wrong uh, weight so this isn't even about validity it's not even about getting the measurement right it's just and this is Becky's point about noise each time you retake that test are you getting the same measurement or a different one and Dylan pointed out that actually most teacher assessments, just the ones that we mock up, I think he said has a reliability of about 0.7. And, and that sounds like, it, oh, that's good, that's yeah, nearly one. Yeah, sounds all right, yeah. Um, I think it means something, if I remember this correct, if, if your score is from 0 to 30, um, your range, when you retake it, could be anything from like 30 out of 100 to 65 out of 100. Yeah. So somebody's true score could be 65, but they actually score 30. And then you look at what that means for where people are placed in, say, just four sets. And it's something I'm seeing, like 60% of people are in the, the wrong set. Yes. For I think I mentioned this on the blog post about um, mixability teaching and yes, setting and, yes, and so forth as well. Right. It's the, the constant set changes, I think, are, a, are an enormous problem. We probably need to stop that. Yeah, and that was her point. She said this is a very strong argument for, for not changing math sets. And she made the other point as well, and um, that backs up what you're saying, that when you when you put two noisy tests together, it's yeah. even worse. So if you test a kid at the start, at the end of one year, end of year seven, with a noisy test, and then at the end of year eight with a noisy test, and try to make some inferences about progress, you just you just ask him for trouble with that one. And Becky's then point was that aggregation is the friend of reliability. I've heard mm. her say this before. And um, so every individual piece of data taken mm -hmm. together is unreliable. But once you start to aggregate them, you start to build up a, a, a more accurate picture. Yeah. Um, and this goes back to what Tom Sherrington was talking about when I interviewed him, that he's a big fan of, if he hates levels, level 7A and all this nonsense, forget that. Yeah. But getting percentages on kind of topic-specific tests, as to use it in a more of a formative way to say, actually, okay, you've got 40% on this ratio test, we need to have a look about what's mm. going on here. Not that you've got level 4B and then I feel pressure to move you up to a 4A. That, mm -hmm. that seems meaningless, but mm -hmm. aggregating data together seems sensible. So I like that point. Now, I'm coming to a big question for you in a minute, Chris, because Becky didn't end with an answer, but I'm hoping you're going to give me an answer. So, her third point was that teacher accountability is the enemy of inference. Teacher mm. accountability mm. is the enemy yeah. of inference. I like that. Now, this was fascinating. This, I absolutely love that. I was snapping pictures left, right, and center. She said that it's virtually impossible to tell which are the best schools because if you measure progress at different points, you get a completely different picture. And she showed a fascinating uh, diagram 
of a, um, a collection of schools where you measure kids' SATs performance at the end of key stage one, so at year, year two or whatever, and then you measure it at the end of key stage two, and you could pretty much see a bit of pattern emerging, mm -hmm. and you'd say, okay, the school that's added the most value, that must be the best school. So I think things are looking good here. But then, if you, instead of measuring it at the end of key stage two, if you do a commercially available test one month before that key stage two SATs, the data is just completely different. And the school that looked the best is now like the fifth or sixth best. There's no correlation going yeah. on whatsoever. If you then, instead of doing it at key stage two sats, if you do it a few months after that, it, the picture completely changes again. And it's these noisy tests taken at one point in time completely distort the picture. So I thought that was interesting. And Becky said, well, why does this happen? And she said, well, two reasons. And the first I thought was quite obvious, which mm -hmm. was you're only testing a narrow domain, so you're going to get this noisy test. But secondly, she said she doesn't think that's enough Enough to explain the difference and she said that it's teachers actually know what's on these commercially available tests so start teaching to the test and do you mean the sats do you mean um, like no the ones that you might do instead of the sats so you okay. might you might uh, get one from i don't know pixel or white rose or something like that you know what's on these tests so you almost start um kind of teaching towards because mm -hmm. especially if they are low stakes for the kids but high stakes for you as a teacher to do with performance management or whatever mm. but then i thought this point was really really fascinating she said that actually the the stakes that the kids perceive have a huge impact on how well they perform. And if yes. you look at measures of persistence in tests, when kids give up, how much they try, if kids perceive it, that it doesn't matter, mm. then the effort levels tend to dip and they're leaving out questions left, right and centre. So Becky says that whenever you... Um, schools try to compare results across different schools. So you get like pixel schools. Any school who's a mm. member of the pixel club will compare mock exam performances amongst schools to try and get an idea of grade boundaries and all this. But if the stakes are not perceived the same across kids in all these different schools, mm. then you're not making valid comparisons. And I thought that was a really interesting point. And the final thing that she said about this is that um, you, one answer to this is that you should always change the test that kids are being given so teachers don't get overly familiar with what the, what's on the test and start narrowing the curriculum. But the problem with that is that then you can't compare previous year's cohorts yes. because if year sevens this year are doing a different test to last yes. year's year seven, then you're in a bit of trouble. So my question to you, Chris, is that Becky kind of ended it with, we, we've, we've kind of got one option, is that we kind of pretend that we can measure progress and we mm -hmm. pretend that progress is a valid thing. But she said, no, we've actually got to be authentic about it and recognise all these problems with progress. So my question, with measuring progress, so my question for you, Chris Bolton, is if you're in charge of a school or a department, how are you measuring progress? Are you worried about it? What, what do we do here? Because we see all, I see all the problems with it, but I, d I don't see a solution. What data are you collecting and, and what are you doing with it? It's a hell of a question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think this is one that f sort of flitted through my thought once years ago and then because I didn't have to worry about yeah, it, I stopped. Yeah, of course. I'm, yeah, absolutely. But I think one question is, do you just... Okay, so... Let's go bold. What happens if you just stop it? So stop measure, stop attempting to measure progress, is this? Yeah. I don't know whether that's good or bad. Um, so first of all, I, one thing I do know is that we have a bizarre rhetoric around uh, testing in the country, 
which means we've got all kinds of people calling out to have fewer tests than we have currently mm. and, and, and complaining that uh, Britain's or England's um, children are the most tested, in, one of the most tested in the world. But, but actually, the more testing you have, the less um, people will worry about yes. those tests. And also, as you said, the, the, the more you get this sort of aggregate, get the aggregate data and the more reliable it all becomes. So more testing is usually actually a good thing. It's not a, a demonic monster that's going to ruin children's lives. It's probably going to make everybody's lives much better. Except that, well, what happens next in terms of the, the data collection? Mm. And uh, two problems we have with that... A is that we think we need far more data than we do, and obviously Dylan William will talk about uh, how does he put it. Um, we need to move away from what is it, a data, ba- da- evident data, cl- data-driven decision making towards decision-driven data collection. In other words, think oh, in advance. What nice. do you need, and then just gather that instead of hoovering that's up everything. Nice. I like that. Um, and then I asked the question, well, do we need the data at all? What do we do with the data, really? And I'm not sure we do that much. We, we put, oh, so we do set changes. Was that helpful? Probably not for anybody. We do uh, intervention groups. Do you really need the data to tell you those are the kids who need the extra tuition? Did you really need that? Could you not just ask your teachers, you've got seven kids, which ones? You can have seven kids in an, in an intervention group, extra tuition or whatever it is, which seven are you going to pick? Surely that would do the job. Um... The progress measures along the way, as you say, are really noisy. I, I don't know. So I, I certainly think that more assessment as we go through is probably a good thing. I'm not sure the extent to which gathering more and more and more data is a good thing until we have uh, technological systems that can do something very intelligent with that. I don't believe we're there yet. So are you doing the more assessments for the benefit to learning that it has as opposed to the benefit of information it's going to give us? You're definitely going to get that as well anyway, just from the testing effect, um, which, of course, doesn't have to... It's a retrieval effect, mm. just any memory that you seek sure. to retrieve doesn't have to be in a test or control conditions. Um, yeah, you're doing it... Well, well, if you do more and more of it, then at the very least, you're going to be gathering, hopefully, more numbers, mm. which can help give you some sort of sense of what's going on. Does it... Do you know what? I this is one that this is one that I've got an easy, clear answer to. Yeah, no. I and know. if Becky doesn't, it would be very unlikely that I did. <laughs> You'd come up with it in the but last part of, But part of me just wonders: what if you stop gathering up the numbers and the data? I don't know. Uh, so either simplify it. So do a, a Tom Sherrington. Let's just have um, some percentages. Yeah. So let's just have some numbers. Forget the grade boundaries and everything else. Uh, do more of it, and then look at averages over time. Um, but that even that's tricky because. Yeah. Your, you can't just have like a big assessment which tests more than has been learned early yes, on and assume that will yes. measure progress. It doesn't work that way. So you, need, you still need very clever testing design, which is still testing only what students have been taught as they go through. Um, but regardless, maybe something like that. Or just do the assessments. Um, it gives everyone maybe as good a picture about how everyone's performing as we have right now. And you've got the added benefit of the testing effect. And just don't gather up the data. What really is going to change yeah I, th- I think that would be a good question for anybody listening especially anybody in a leadership position to really just think through if we didn't gather up the data what would actually be what would how would our behaviors as a school and as teachers and leaders in the school actually change would they be different if the answer is no uh, then 
you can probably save everybody an awful lot of time. I think you're right. And I'd advise listeners to listen to my Tom Sherrington interview and my takeaway at the end where I address what my potential solution to this would be. It's not perfect, but if you're interested, check that out. Right, Chris Bolton, what, what, tell us about another session that you went to see then. So I went to see uh, Becky Allen's counterpart, Laura McInerney, nice. talking about what they'd found out from TeacherTap. And what Laura's found out from TeacherTap is that... Just tell us about TeacherTap, just in case listeners aren't oh, Well, if you have not heard of TeacherTap, go to the App Store right now on uh, and all good Android and iOS devices <laughs> nice. and download TeacherTap because... It's brilliant. It's um, a tiny little app. It'll ask you at 3.30 p.m. every day, including weekends, it will pop up with a notification saying there are new questions. You tap it, it'll give you one question, and uh, just ask either for a bit of information like um, how many hours of lessons have you taught this week, for example, or it will ask you for an opinion on something, and it will do that three times. So it takes... 20 seconds, very little time. As soon as you've done, as soon as you've done that, you get the raw data from yesterday's poll so you can see what all the other teachers on TeacherTap <laughs> nice. thought. And it's been genuinely surprising for me yes. sometimes. I think we saw 75% uh, in favour of differentiating for learning styles, which was a shocker still. Um, <laughs> there have been a few others that have uh, surprised me as well. I usually uh, put them up in tweet and say, well, didn't expect that. <laughs> It doesn't take very long. It's really interesting. They also have what they call a, a CPD bullet at the end. So you tap on this button and it points you in the direction of a blog post, which will be maybe two, two to five minutes to read. It's brilliant. And I, and I said at the time, really, you're going to send me a notification. Because this kicked off nearly a year ago, Research Eds, last year in September. Um, every single day you're going to give me a notification. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's fun for three days. Yes. And then I bet yeah, yeah. I'll stop doing it. No, every day I'm there <laughs> tapping away because they've made it so easy. So, yeah, get on board. 2,200 teachers are doing this right now. They one. want an alternative. So whenever governments say, hey, teachers think this or we should do X, yes. uh, they want an alternative way of finding out, is that true? And yes. so the more people are on it, the, uh, the better their data becomes. And I, straight off the bat, one of the first things that Laura uh, opened with was... As somebody, I can't remember who it was now, had argued that we could save huge quantities of money in schools if we stopped giving teachers unfettered access to coloured printing. <laughs> and Laura naturally thought, and I agree with her, come on, that's nonsense. That, yeah, that's a yeah. bloke who's never been a teacher, never been yep. in a classroom, doesn't understand how it works. We don't all have unlimited print. We've got £10 a month and we're grateful <laughs> for it or, or whatever it is. Um, so they made it a question and much to her surprise it turns out that about three quarters of I think it was I might have just totally made that yeah, up yeah. but um, a, a significant percentage of in particular primary school teachers do have an unlimited colour print budget right okay which was surprising to me as well so she held this up as a great example of how um, you know we hold politicians to account all the time yes, with their yes. things their opinions the statements they put out there Laura had been out there saying come on this is nonsense and then um, had been disproved by her own app. So it was a great start. Um, and then we went from that beginning to a, an end message, which was, we are all screwed. <laughs> and this like is you. why we're all screwed. Uh, it, 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 it's a fascinating analysis, and it's a genuinely, um, genuinely interesting problem. It feels very abstract, so I don't feel like we're all screwed. I feel like everything's fine, sat in this wonderful garden on a sunny day. <laughs> But um, I, I think if, uh, if you're a policymaker in particular, it's something you really need to um, 
sit up and pay attention to. So she was looking at how teachers feel about how, what teachers' days look like. I say, look, it's busy. It's very busy. Uh, most teachers are getting, like 40% of teachers are getting in at 7.30 and getting up at 5 a.m. Mm. The rest are getting up at 6 a.m. and they're all in the school before 8. Um, the earliest are leaving at, I think, about 4, 4.30. About 4.30 was yeah. the time she gave. Um, that's usually ones with kids. The, yeah. Without kids, they'll stay a bit longer. Um, and they feel guilty about the fact that despite having turned up, immediately been in a briefing and then taught a lesson, then done a break duty, taught some more lessons, done a lunch duty, taught some more lessons, chased some kids around for detentions in the school, ran some detentions, done a parents' meeting, um, and finally hit 4.30. Um, guilty that there's still some marking to do, so then take it home. And apparently the, the pecking order for taking marking home is primary teachers with children, followed by secondary teachers with children, followed by primary teachers, followed by secondary teachers oh, without children. Yes. And it's because we've got to get home, kids yeah, are home, yeah, and, then, yeah, of course. and then once the kids are in bed, sat in front of the TV doing some marking. So... Um, you've got teachers reporting very long days, like 12-hour workdays. And I think Laura's take on this was, you're not necessarily working 12 hours a day, but you're getting into, you're getting up at 5 a.m., you're getting into school at 7.30, you're then still marking papers in front of a TV at 9, 10 p.m. or whatever it is. So you've probably done 9 to 10 hours, and it, and it feels like it's even longer. Yeah. So it's a busy day, it feels like a busy day. Um... What do we have next? Some interesting things where teachers are looking at how much of this is self-generated. We said self-generated. So a lot of teachers saying, if I didn't, if I didn't, wasn't made to do this marking, would I still do it? Yes, because I believe it's valuable. And so we can argue that's self-generated, but how much of that is self-generated versus consequent of a, a culture that we've created? Mm. It's become the zeitgeist that this is what a good yep. teacher does. Yep. Um, I just had a random conversation with a head teacher coming out of that session where she was talking about how she goes out of her way, primary school head teacher goes out of her way to make sure that her teachers don't have to do that, and, but she does it, and her husband hates her doing yes, it. Yes, And it reminded me of when I saw Doug Lamov speak three years ago about when he first became a head teacher and he felt, as a head teacher, it's my job, I must be working harder than yes, ever. It's wrong yes. if I'm earning the big bucks and other people are working yes. harder than I am. So I made sure that he was really putting in the hours. And it sounded great to me at the time. I think it was more, I think it was five years. I think I was still in a position where I was seeing the sort of head teacher work fewer hours than me and feeling yes. quite resentful of it. But then he explained that actually what happened was the teaching staff just thought, oh, that's what I've got to do. Yeah. So they worked the long hours and he said he created what he calls a salt mine culture. So we talk about this self-generated teacher work, but I am wondering how much of it is, is not just purely self, but cultural. Mm. Um, and then, so what this comes into is yeah, you, essentially there's an, and now apparently there's conversation going on around will teachers work do they want flexible time or will they do part time and there's this big thing about I think 40% of teachers on TeacherTap said they would be happy to work for four days but 40% said they want five 40% they wanted four days this is accounting for the fact they're getting paid a day less yeah. and then when asked why they want the extra day so I can get done everything on the Friday die all the homework all the admin get it all done out the way so I get my evenings and my weekend back spend more time with my own kids etc yes. okay so maybe some so then we get into maybe some people can do that and apparently there's a correlation between the people who say they want to do that and the people who aren't the main money earner for their household and then this becomes a problem and this is where we start to get screwed because <laughs> of the 21 year olds so her argument is what we're saying to 21 year olds who have more student debt than they've ever had yes and who uh, who's for who 
for whom house prices are yep. higher than they've ever been. Yep. You've got two choices if you want to consider teaching. Choice number one is work five days and you'll get probably enough money to start paying off your loan yes. and maybe afford a house anywhere but London <laughs> and so on and so forth. But you're going to have to give up your evenings yep. and you're going to have to give up at least one weekend. Yep. So you can have some money but you're not going to have much of a life yep. and you're still young and you probably want to live life. Yep, yep. Or you can just work for four days, do all the other admin stuff on a Friday and then you get your evenings and your weekends back and you get to live life while you're young. And they can't afford to do that anymore. So, and then as Laura described it, 21-year-olds are the cannon fodder of the profession. Mm -hmm. We hoover up a large yeah, number of them yeah, every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Many of them do not then go into the classroom after teaching, after teacher training. But obviously, most of them do. And then lots of them leave. But we just keep hoovering them up, hoovering them up, and kind of throwing them at the system and hoping that some of them will stick. And um, in the end, she described this as being like eating a deep-fried Mars bar. Where she used to do this every day for three years. She, it's one of the most wonderful things in her life. And she doesn't in any way, shape, or form look overweight or unhealthy. <laughs> and yet... Had that continued, perhaps there'd be some sort of hidden internal damage yes. going on. Yes. And uh, so she's just looking at the current state of the system and worrying that it's a bit like that. That uh, we're not seeing the hidden negative effect of the system we've created somehow, unintentionally, just yet. Um, so that was it. Uh, no answers. No, Once again, no, Becky, no, no. Becky and Laura, yeah, yeah. full of problems. <laughs> no solutions. Um, my solution, incidentally, is better teacher training, however... Having been involved in this, I do know how uh, intractable, intractable a problem that can currently yes. be as well. Um, but yeah, I, th I think we, I think we need better training so that people feel like they're good teachers and will stay there. Reassuring to hear Amanda talk about uh, backing teachers with um, head teachers with uh, strong, tough behaviour policies earlier, yes. because that's another big reason I think teachers are going to be inspired to leave the profession, workload, and uh, not feeling like you're doing a good job and poor behaviour. So that was uh, Laura's session. That's a great tap. summary. And we'll come to uh, Amanda Spielman later on. That's, that's perfect. Thanks, Chris. For that. that sounds fascinating. Um, my next two sessions kind of build up a little bit on that. So I'll do them kind of two for the price of one here. Because I, I was, having seen Becky for the first ever time, I was so enthralled. I thought, I've got to see her again straight after. So she was doing a session uh, with Ralph Lucas. So I was in that. I'm not, yeah, not familiar no, with him. And the title was, Schools Should Be Accountable to Parents Rather Than the Government. So and the I title, thought, it looked interesting. Yeah, so I'm looking forward be, to hearing about yeah, this Yeah, it, it was fascinating. And um, the kind of big takeaway for me was that this Teacher Tap app, could have a massive role to play in terms of getting mm. parents' views on school. And it was like, if I was being cynical, I'd think, well, it's no surprise Becky's promoted this as she's behind the app. But that, <laughs> it seemed genuinely um, a fascinating thing to, to consider because the point that both of them were making, both Becky and Ralph, was that parents are not really informed enough about the strengths and weaknesses of a school. Mm. So it would be uh, quite dodgy to put parents in charge of schools. And in particular... In some schools, mm. you get a really strong parent voice. You'll get a really strong kind of parent support group. But are they representative of all parents? Mm -hmm. And Becky made the point that sometimes a head teacher will get 50 letters of complaint from par angry parents saying books aren't being marked enough. Mm -hmm. But that will be out of 1,500 parents. And what do the other 1,450 yeah. think? And you, it's just like anything. You, you listen to the vocal minority because it, you can't get the views of everybody else. So the point here that they were making was we need 
a better way or any way to collect the day-to-day -day views of what parents think about That's how schools are idea. run. And end-of-year surveys don't do it because they capture a specific moment yeah. in time. You get very low participation rates in them. And just hearing you describe the power of teacher tap then, I was just thinking like, during the session, I was thinking, well, this is going to be perfect for parents. And then Becky said, you know, this, this is one potential thing because it can be anonymized data. Yep. It's not a big effort on parents time it captures it across the year not just at one point and i just thought that makes a lot of sense mm. so if if you're a school and you want to know what your parents think about your school this is a potentially perfect solution but then there's a twist at the end of the <laughs> tale and becky made the point that would head teachers actually want this uh -huh. because it's quite a big shout to say do I actually want to know what the parents of my mm -hmm. students think about this school? And Becky, rather cynically, but possibly rather realistically, said that she didn't mm. think many many would go for it. Mm. But I thought that was a good idea. What, what, what's your take there? It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. As, as I say, I'm very rarely going to disagree with anything that <laughs> yeah, Professor Becky smart. Owen says. She's good. Um, it, it's a brilliant idea. I, I'd love to speak with head teachers and or just hear from head teachers what do they think like, what is she, is she right is, is the cynicism founded mm. um i'm a i'm a big fan of uh, transparency accountability responsibility just individuals having ownership for something for me it's a great frustration that um it's very difficult as a teacher it, it's almost impossible as a teacher to actually be truly accountable for the outcomes of your pupils because yes. there are so many other factors and yes Hattie's book he's got lots of different factors that can influence outcomes so it's tricky but I'm a big fan of it wherever we can get it and so I would like to believe that if I were a teacher of a school I would absolutely want the opinions of parents um, I think gathering that information and, and what's great about and I don't know if they'd run it the same way but what's great about teacher tap is it is itself very transparent the very mm. next day you see what everybody else yes. thought and that's part of the incentive for getting involved. It's not just sort of hidden. And it doesn't just go into a big you know, IBM server somewhere <laughs> else in the world. Um, and as a parent, that would be interesting. Yeah, what do all the other oh, parents absolutely. think? So, but you, again, you'd have to be comfortable with not controlling the message, allowing that to get out there and being prepared to respond to it. But I can't imagine that a good head teacher would be somebody who wouldn't be prepared to do that. I don't, I think, because the alternative to me feels too much like you're trying to just hide yeah, what's absolutely. going on. Absolutely. I, I don't think a head teacher, a good head teacher would be, yeah, would be averse to that. But then I, I've never had to uh, sort of, um, is endure too strong a word, all of the <laughs> scrutiny and accountability that, that head teachers do. Absolutely. So perhaps. I, th uh, I, think, I think it would empower a head teacher because if you've got. 50 parents saying that books aren't being marked enough and writing angry letters yeah. but then you can say but hold on 75% of respondents to this question have said yeah. actually they're very happy with how it's at least then you could know that you are reacting to the majority as opposed to a vocal minority right? yeah and if it is the the majority who are saying and of course sometimes with these things you'll get people saying um you can get an effect where people will uh so if you, sometimes you can ask people, what do you think is a reasonable price to pay for this product? And they'll, they'll go low. And, yeah. and then in the analysis, you put it up because you know people put it yeah, low because sure, they think, sure. oh, if, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if everyone yeah. says low, we'll get it for, yeah, for cheaper. Yeah. So likewise, oh, I can get more marketing yeah, in my kids' books. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, not yeah, enough. But then you can, um, at, at least if you know that that's what people are saying, you can communicate with them. And Absolutely. you can, it doesn't mean to say you have to now make um, teachers mark more. You can just 
run some kind of internal analysis well how much marking is being done why are parents saying bring in a few parents talk to them why why are you saying this why do you think this and then respond to it I mean that's a bit of a fantasy scenario now all of that takes time and coordination Mm. and effort and um, obviously one of the the big decisions you've got as a head teacher is how am I going to spend very little time but in principle you could at least do that and I wonder if actually all the, the practical obstacles to that might be one of the reasons why somebody doesn't be parents evening not with their children but with their um their teachers some schools do that you could use that as an opportunity to what what do they call them in america like open forums things like that that's right you could run that kind of thing occasionally and go through these issues that are having an open conversation that sounds good to me there's something in there yeah Yeah. no i i really enjoy i really enjoyed that session and i'll just just talk quickly about this then i'll hand back to you for for the final session you saw um i went to watch piers morgan and uh, interview michael wilshaw now i'll tell you chris i was torn here because there was some good sessions going on it was like i've never seen um, alex quigley talk and he was he was talking there i think david uh, didow was talking didow was talking as well it was like all-star lineup but I was a bit starstruck, so I thought I want to go. And watch, I, I just want to go go watch it because I'm a little bit obsessed with. I want to get a better interviewer all the time, and I'm reading books on right. on interview technique, and I listen to all different podcasts. And Piers Morgan, he's got oh, a very wow. interesting interview style, so I thought I want to watch him live in person and just see what I can learn. And also, Michael Wilshaw, he's got a book coming out, right. and I know he's got some quite strong views. So I thought I'll yes. watch it for for the spectacle, and hopefully there's some good content. And I'll tell you what was fascinating. So going back to something you said before, Michael Wilshaw said and it got a bit of a woo from the crowd he said that we need to realize that sometimes that not all teachers are good hard-working committed individuals there are plenty of teachers who are skiving off at 3 p.m and they're not professional and they're not committed to do their best and I thought that was an interesting point you don't hear that a lot and it's quite uncomfortable mm. sometimes for teachers to hear but I mean I'll say it now live I know some of those teachers some mm. of those teachers who have sometimes it's just they've fallen into the profession and they don't intend to be in it for a long time and they're in it for the holidays and they just kind of coast their way through and it's it's unfortunate because it's the kids ultimately who dip out but I thought that was that was interesting the fact that just for him to say that that he'd witnessed that in schools and it's it's not all holding up every teacher um, on a pedestal and stuff so that was quite interesting um, he made the point you, 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 you've been talking uh, just on this interview about strong head teachers and good head teachers mm. he said he's seen plenty of weak and poor head teachers and they're the ones that trap themselves in their office and become bureaucrats mm. whereas the good head teachers are in classrooms the kids know their name and the teachers know them and all, and all that kind of stuff so I thought that that was interesting back to parents he said that parents who don't take an interest in their kids should be fined and he would say if they don't turn up to parents evening he would find them um, and he said that less as in many schools less than 50% of students turn up mm. and it tends to be from white families which mm. I found which I, I thought was interesting as well um, again he wasn't afraid to be controversial during this uh, the school system is now completely mediocre mm-hmm. uh, we are not doing enough to about the long tail of underachievement and we're not investing enough in teachers teachers are chronically underpaid he's worried that money's being poured into the NHS over the next few years but not into education mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, th- I thought that was an interesting point. But then this is what I wanted to ask you about. And I've written in my notes here, ask Chris about this. Okay. okay, ready for this. So he said that one of the weaknesses of Ofsted in the past was they did not recognize character teachers. Mm. So he said that mm. Ofsted became almost formulaic. You had to deliver this kind of lesson. So yeah. starter, main, plenary, or, you know, difference, all these kind of things. It was almost became a yeah. tick box exercise. 
Whereas um, character teachers, teachers who were a bit quirky, did things differently, almost suffered under the old system. And one of the things he wanted to change was that actually it recognised these inspirational teachers who did things differently. But then he made the point that Ofsted has no preferred teaching styles anymore. Mm-hmm. And Jane Jones, when I interviewed her for the podcast, she, she said that very, very clearly, no preferred teaching style. My question I wanted to ask to you, Chris, especially with you, when you're such an advocate of direct instruction mm-hmm. or explicit instruction, is that a good thing? Should it should Ofsted be be saying there are no preferred teaching styles, or should Ofsted be saying actually we do want to see periods of modelling, explanation, retrieval practice? Well, what's your take on that? Yeah, it. I've wondered that question many times. I read. Um, I read something by um, I think it was Carl Baraita, written in the I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, written in sort of eighty or eighty one. Um, so as I pointed out earlier, with any kind of educational research live in the field, it, you generate some kind of statistical noise. Sure. It can be difficult to control. After project follow through, the the big one in which direct instruction was a part, uh, there was a paper by uh, it was a sort of I think this was actually. Um, committee that had been convened to look at the way the analysis had been done after the fact. Uh, it was four people, uh, House, Glass, et al., about 79, I think, so two years after um, the follow-through results were published. And they essentially concluded by the end of it, oh, because of the experimental design, actually you can't conclude anything from this, from this data. Um, and Carl Bereiter pointed out in this sort of response to them uh, oh, look some of the points they've made are valid you probably don't want to be using the was it the raven's coloured progression test but you really get those like um, IQ tests where you've got these sequences of symbols oh yes this was one of the tests of cognitive ability ah, in okay. a project follow it wasn't the only one yes. though but they just said you should like this was a poor test it's right. great but what about the other one so he sort of picks takes them to task a bit and says like come on you haven't spent a billion dollars and had a hundred thousand people involved in this and learned nothing at all and towards the end, one of his sort of closing closing remarks is um, that, given what's at stake, um, some people are happy to sort of have this conversation and say, "Okay, we haven't really learned anything. Like, let's live and let live." I suppose you, given what's at stake, you can't justify. This isn't one of those situations where we can just agree to go our separate ways, agree to disagree. It needs to be put up or shut up. So, on the one hand. If we've got a bunch of things that we know can be effective, then should we have a body which is saying everyone needs to do it? Part of me thinks um, that would be a very, very quick win. It would be a very quick and easy way to get a bunch of stuff into the system. It's happened plenty of times before. We've seen how uh, far and now how intractable things like learning styles have become as a consequence of it. But on the other hand, it... If you get anything wrong in the delivery of it, then you're stuck with another mistake for God knows how long. It, it is a such a strong lever to pull, uh, Ofsted, having things in there. And I'm not. I'm, I, what happens? So let's say, um, like, what is it that Ofsted could actually recommend in terms of well, like, preferred right. learning style? Well, well let, let me let me chuck this at you then. So Tom Sherrington, when I interviewed him, described 
some things, I asked a similar question to him mm. and he said there are some things that are pretty safe bets that are probably going to have a positive impact on student learning. So an element of retrieval practice, mm -hmm. either within a lesson or within um, a, a sequence of lessons, is probably a safe bet that that is going to have a positive impact mm -hmm. on students. So should that be an Ofsted requirement that we need to see some retrieval practice? I actually quite liked something that Amanda said in her speech where she described uh, the idea of having a, a sort of conversation with schools uh, as a part of the inspection process because uh, so first of all you, you have this sort of classic measurement problem so you're going in for one or two days sure. and maybe you don't see the moment where the retrieval sure. practice takes place um, and maybe you're going in and you're dealing with teachers or senior leaders who've never heard that retrieval practice is a good thing. You know what? Most people still haven't. Yeah. And so why are you now slapping an RI or inadequate mm. grading on them when that, that's genuinely not a mistake that they have made? They haven't done something. Maybe it does require improvement, but there's a stigma that comes with that label, sure. uh, which is unearned and unjustified. Um, and so the, the, the reason I like this sort of conversation bit is I almost, I, I prefer the idea of why aren't you, why aren't you doing it? There's all this evidence saying it's a great thing. Did you just not know that? Or have yeah. you got a legitimate reason yes. for thinking this is uh, not a good idea? And Amanda seemed to be heading more in that direction uh, where there are uh, instructional practices, which we uh, know, um, I, I can't remember what language she used and, uh, Unjustified or the yes. evidence is against it. I don't know what she had in mind, but we can probably go with brain gym if we want an extreme <laughs> version. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to ask, having that conversation, why why are you doing this? Yes. Given given this, because you can still buy brain gym training. Sure. I've seen primary schools where they still say that they're using brain gym and um, they're on their websites and say it's a part of this cutting edge um, learning thing that they have going on in their school. Maybe nobody's told them that actually that all ended 10 years yeah, ago. Okay. And then you're coming in and just penalizing them instead of being someone who could have supported them through it. Well, what, so it what would the conversation be like, Chris? So this like, is it. I don't, I don't quite know. And it's very tricky to, to figure out. Um, and this is probably, yeah, national structures, possibly not my yeah. superpower just yet. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure how it would work. I, I, I can look at the, the kind of do to sort of slap an RI, um, unsatisfactory, uh, grading on it and then come back a year later and just have this sort of panic and furor around it I, I, because, I'm not sure I think and you, you're partly to blame for this because <laughs> right. you, you've got me kind of thinking about all these kind of things and reading all this kind of stuff and you were one of the catalysts along with kind of Greg Ashman and Dylan around my transformation and now I'm convinced by retrieval practice yes. I'm convinced it's a fundamental thing me too right I think it's essential right so 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 do I so why shouldn't that be a, a, a required part of a school's curriculum or, a, or, or you know, and if, a, if, yeah. you, if an inspector okay. went in and it wasn't so I and you had that conversation and the head teacher went, went either A, I fundamentally don't believe in mm. it, well then my question is, well, why, what's your, yeah. what's your evidence, or two, I haven't heard of this, Yes. well then that's, that's an issue as well for me, mm. right? So why shouldn't we be doing this Chris why shouldn't it be why shouldn't so it, be it probably should be required and I mean required in a, in a very abstract sense the question is how do you get it to the point where it is required mm. how do you get it to a point where 
everybody knows that this is required of them and it, and it should be done. Yeah. And then the question is, is Ofsted the right mechanism for that? Up to this point, my feeling has been that, um, in, a, in a big way, actually, the teacher training providers are big gatekeepers to this. They're the people who could be telling everybody as they enter the profession you should be doing this and now we are lucky that we have institutions like the IFT and um, this is also incorporated into the new Teach First training program as well that I worked on but as far as I'm aware a great many other training providers aren't doing this mm. that would be an ideal way of doing it. you are upskilling a profession yeah, okay. yes. rather than yeah, yeah, yeah. using an accountability Zero measurement to do it okay. yep, yep. because okay. I only worry about unintended consequences as a result of going that way it sounds like it would definitely be a quick way of trying to get mm, something to happen yeah. but I don't know with confidence whether the thing that ends up happening yes. is the thing we wanted and envisioned and look at um, everything that happened with AFL for Dylan yeah, William he had sure. massive backing from the government and everybody and it became a big thing and it became an Ofsted required thing yeah, did we get AFL in the way that it was envisioned no we did yeah. not so we got teachers who were aware of it and they knew the language and they were doing a thing mm. it was never the thing it was supposed to be yes. so I'm worried that it goes that way and, you know, and, and also I'm legitimately worried on behalf of the people who don't think direct instruction is a good thing and don't think retrieval practice and drills are important that actually we would create their nightmare school yeah, which is never the one that um, I have in my mind sure. when I'm thinking about these things when I say drills are good, drill and thrill not drill and kill it's definitely not their vision, their nightmare vision I have in mind. And I'd be scared of accidentally enacting that because you're not, you're kind of telling people who haven't actually read a lot about this or thought about it or been trained in it, suddenly you've just got to do this thing and they do yes. the weakest version of it, which looks like it ticks the box and actually is the bad thing that yes. nobody wanted. And we've just knocked the pendulum way yeah, off to the other side point. again. Fair point. So that, that's the reason I don't go all in for yes, Ofsted should mandate it. Those are the... The concerns I have. Still. I like it. Very, very good arguments. And the the end of that one, and then I'll hand over to you for for the last session. Was that we came back to uh, the whole interview started about Love Island because right. uh, Piers Morgan yesterday on Good Morning Britain had a contestant from Love Island who'd been evicted, and he put her to the test on uh, whether the, <laughs> she knew Pythagoras's theorem okay. to four decimal places. He mixed up pi and Pythagoras, <laughs> so it was all kicking off. So then he ended the session by saying that Love Island is a sad reflection on our education system and Michael Wilshaw was all in favour of this they were mm -hmm. hating it but then a teacher stood up and I think she was the education correspondent for the Times okay. saying that Love Island is an incredibly wonderful thing for families to watch together and have some really interesting conversations and teach them about love respect all this kind of stuff so my final question to you Chris is are you a Love Island watcher or not? So what's Love Island? Um, so, uh, I, <laughs> that kind of answers the question Yeah I think so I, the, uh, the, the I remember ITV's, something about Temptation Island is it like yeah, that yeah, it's exactly the same. So it would be um, single people, beautiful yeah. young single people on an island. They get paired up, coupled together. ITV's kind go of biggest... Um, dates or something? In yeah, they'll go on dates, but then yeah. they'll be... Just when they're getting together, they'll be forced apart, and then there's competition to get votes, stay on the island and treats or voted off. Okay. Um, I, I can see being up your street, actually, this. Really? Uh, <laughs> Every night, ITV2 at the moment. Uh, you know, generally speaking, I'm not a massive fan of any version of reality TV and the reason I mean I was as a kid I really loved it and Big Brother came on yeah, and watched it religiously days, and I found it fascinating I found uh, and it, having the kind of um, pop psychologists pop up his talking yeah. heads explaining <laughs> yeah. what's going on I loved all that and I thought it was great um, but what I witnessed over the past 15 years or more 20 years God <laughs> um, 
w is a sort of increasing trend where a, a trend of increasing uh, it, it seems to be a lot about um, get, getting into our heads and uh, and almost sort of playing up to the very worst parts of our spirit and our mm. soul and what frustrates so the best example I have of this actually is uh, Come Dine With Me oh yeah Many way, in many ways, I love the Come Down With Me TV series. Uh, I really enjoy watching it. I think, it's, I think it's good fun watching a bunch of strangers figure out how they're going to plan um, dinner events for each other. Yep. I, just, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the let's snoop around the house bit, but <laughs> the other part I like, and I like food. Um, but then a weird thing happen, happens where I just seem to be really different from a lot of people because I have a visceral loathing for the voiceover guy right okay. and the voiceover guy um is just this disembodied voice which no one can interact with clearly sort of slapped on after uh the whole thing has been yep. produced post-production and he just mocks everyone on screen yep. at every conceivable point and anything it's a little bit silly that they've said that's now recorded for all for forevermore um, he will mock it and just insult them and this happens again and again now what he's usually doing is actually so saying what you're really thinking in your own head as yep. you sit there and watch these poor individuals who are under the sort of public gaze. But then he kind of gives it a voice and makes it. And then he's like, "Oh, he's your, your friend, so you're going to sort of talk with your friend on a TV." It's like this TV show gets me, and that's where I think a lot of people interact with it and really love it. But it's one thing to have a private thought, which is a bit mean. It's a very different thing to start verbalizing that and vocalizing it and putting it out into the world and to sort of generating a lot of um, sort of unsavory feelings and attitudes towards other people. And I feel like a lot of reality TV often does that. So I don't know whether or not Love Island does that. <laughs> I strongly suspect it does because that is what is in vogue, it seems. And therefore, I probably would disagree with whoever spoke up in its defense. I haven't seen it, though. Maybe it's different. What, um, I, would, you, would you have a TV I doubt it. guilty pleasure, Chris? What would you watch that people might be surprised that you, you enjoy? I mean, it was Gilly Pleasure TV, about as far as it goes is the likes of the sort of Marvel TV series. Oh, okay. Halfway through Jessica Jones at the moment, <laughs> series two. Not as good as the first one, but we knew it wasn't going to be. David Tennant as uh, Killgrave. Brilliant. What a name. Killgrave. Ridiculous. Love it. So you um, take a bit of that. Okay. Yeah. I don't get much cerebral stimulation from that one. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, tell me about one more session that you went to, then we'll talk Amanda Spielman, and then sure. we'll wrap it up. So the last one, uh, quite briefly, just very interesting. Uh, I went to see Jamie Martin, who I've met before. He was a former special advisor to Michael Gove. Okay. Um, very interesting guy, very smart. And a few years ago, he decided to move to South Africa. And he's just become really passionate about um, the education problems that mm. Africa has, trying to solve them. So he set up a... Um, uh, an incubator incubator or is it an accelerator I think it's an incubator right. at this point um, for ed, specifically ed tech companies that feel they can solve uh, education problems in Africa and so to begin with he's sort of outlining the problems that countries on the African continent have and that's revealing so when we're and I do sometimes wonder this whether we'll ever be satisfied with the state of education in, in, in England or are we just going to moan and complain about it and yeah. try to make it better for yeah, yeah. is it just a point where Will there ever be a... Because it's never going to be perfect, perfect. So is there ever a point when we'll stop moaning and complaining about it? Because it's always going to be possible to make it better. And you know what? You look at what they're facing in Africa. Um, and it's such a bigger problem for various reasons. I mean, one, I think... I think he said... I think these were statistics for the whole continent, not any uh, country in particular. 
70% can't read for any uh, degree of comprehension. I think there was something like 40 or 50%, maybe it was higher, in rural areas have never, don't even attend school. You know what, it might have been way higher than that. Um, and then there's some really fascinating challenges, like uh, I think it was Namibia, he said, is three times the geographic size of Texas. With a, and I think I think it was national population, not, it might have been capital city, it was either capital city or national population of two million. You should probably Google it, but <laughs> hey, you know what, you can't always just Google it, because yeah. do you really want dead air time while yeah, I Google yeah, it yeah. off my phone? No, you need to know these things. Um, let's pretend it was yeah, national yeah, population, sure. see let's if anyone it. catches that on Twitter, because that sounds even worse. <laughs> Enormous geographic scale, very few people. Yes. And the other one I definitely remember correctly, Botswana, about the size of... Uh, Texas, about one one times Texas. Yeah. Uh, capital city, I think he said three hundred thousand people, right. maybe two hundred thousand people. So, absolutely t- tiny, sparsely mm. populated, yes. geographic expanses. Yes. You don't even have a school near you. Where are you going to go to school? So this is where education becomes so important in that context. You need to have some sort of distributed platform. Um, and he had other things that he was very optimistic about um, the leapfrog effect. Um, Smartphones are actually very prevalent over there, and there was like text, text-based tutoring was apparently nice. a thing for a while, yes, in a way that yes. never really took off over here. Um, so there are lots of great things, but then there were some very serious barriers, obvious corruption, a lot of money targeted for education mm. doesn't actually get into the ground. Um, apparently, a survey of, um, and again, I don't know if this is all over Africa or just one of the countries, um, but a, a big survey of school children had asked them. What would you most like money to be spent on? What would you least like money yeah. to be spent on? And the response that came out highest for least like money to be spent on was the head teacher's car. There's very little accountability. Apparently, um, they said they would... Somebody, a potential funder, told them they would be perfectly happy if... Or maybe it was a, a government official, but either way, whoever this individual was, they'd be perfectly happy if they could fund somebody who would create an edtech solution just to figure out how many schools there are and where they are. Jeez. That's the level of like accountability and data it's that they're looking Literally at. a different world, right? Completely, completely different problems. And yet, so there were, there were lots of things that, um, uh, that, that Jeremy recognizes are serious impediments, serious problems. Uh, apparently, internet data over there is more expensive than over here. And he made the point, not purchasing power parity, but literally, it is more expensive. In an absolute sense, and it, it, you've got lots of like AOA style, AOL style, yes. dodgy dial-up, oh. or just sort of poor internet connections, low bandwidth. So there are some serious problems, but there are some. Um, there, there is also a lot of hope that because things are so bad, there's a real sense of, well, nothing else is working. So hey, maybe we'll give it a yes. shot. Maybe we'll try something and try to make it work. Um, he's concerned, as he should be, and as we should be, about the idea of um, using technology to avoid more endemic problems and um, yes. like just poor teaching quality. It's fine because we'll just give every child a laptop, problem solved. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, and he's also a little bit worried about <coughs> ill-thought-out solutions like that. Like, get everyone a tablet and then the problem solved. No, because yes. it depends upon what's on of the tablet course. and how people interact with it. Um, so for me, it was largely just uh, an interesting information session. It was good to get a real um, sort of... Sent- Sense, a sort of uh, a reminder. What, what's what's the word? Not sense check. Um, I don't know. So a reminder that things aren't as bad yeah. in 
England and in the UK as we sometimes make it. It's great to feel passionate about it and want to drive for change. It's good to be reminded that a reality check. Reality that's check. it. There we go. Actually, we've got it pretty damned good. Yes. So let's celebrate what is good and then work on the stuff that we think can be better. So it was just a great session to turn up to about something I know very little. That sounds fascinating. And then the final session yes. today that we both were in was um, Amanda Spielman. Indeed. So what? What? Yeah. What was your take on this, Chris? So we should, I guess we should, for the for the benefit of uh, listeners here, just a bit of background. So um, Amanda Spielman, she's the Chief Inspector of Schools. I think she's had that role for maybe two years two now, years, something along that, yeah. those lines. And it's one of those things, I've, ne- I've never never been in this, but it seems to happen all the time, right? Like the speech kind of leaks on the morning that the, the it's like min- <laughs> yeah. minister happens all the time with, with ministers and stuff. So the kind of headline figure I knew going in was that Amanda Spielman is going to talk about uh, behaviour and is going to <laughs> be suggesting that kids should be writing lines and doing community <laughs> service within school grounds. So I'm thinking, geez, what's this going to be like? But yeah, it was, it was a, I found it an interesting talk. But yeah, what was your take on some of the main points, Chris? Well, what did you think about that part where Amanda mentioned that? Yeah. She, um, <sighs> she did talk about being well misrepresented or misquoted or this will happen people will read into your words <laughs> yeah. whatever they want to and i assume if you're a, a big public figure like that it's exactly something that you've just got to recognize comes to the territory exactly i mean be- behavior is one of the main mm. kind of the, the takeaways for, from me from the thing that pupils behavior is the number one concern of parents when when they talk yes. about schools they want to know what their behavior is like they want to know about bullying yeah. so she's um, advocating a new separate behavior and attitude judgment as part of as part of the Austin mm. judgment and what i particularly liked is she's not just looking at the main big behavior incidents but looking at low stakes classroom disruption and this is when she said that poss- she will not have a problem if sanctions in schools involve writing lines yes. and community services like picking up litter in school grounds, as long as it's not just like a maverick teacher deciding to do it, as long as it's part of the school kind yes. of behaviour culture. And this fe- feeds in as well to what you were saying about curriculum, that there'll be no approved Ofsted curriculum. Schools can choose to follow what curriculum they like as long as they can justify it, as long as they can have this conversation. Yes. So behaviour policies, no fixed behaviour policy, as it's down to the school as long as they can justify it and it's followed through consistently no fixed uh, approved curriculum as long as they can justify it and I found particularly interesting did you pick up on this Chris as well when she criticised and a new word this the pixelization or the pixelation <laughs> of the curriculum which pixelification is a, pi- pixelification that was it, was. which is a direct reference to, to the, the pixel uh, corporation which I found fascinating the fact that she would come out and, and explicitly say that and that got a few kind of woos from the crowd yeah so, very strong language it, almost directly targeted as a, <laughs> it, a private entity that it was, really really was, but what, was your take, what was your take on the whole thing were, were you impressed or um yeah so on the behavior mm. i think that is a message that we keep needing to sing loud and clear i was always entertained by um the, the time, I, I remember clearly trying to um, book in one of my kids for a detention right. and realising he was already full for the next two months on the system. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and yeah. there's a very serious <laughs> sense of disempowerment that comes with that. I, my, my worst day in a school ever was probably the, my Monday of uh, my second week and, uh, well, of ever teaching. And all, uh, all fell apart in my year 11 lesson period two was... Complete disaster. Behaviour was, was, was terrible. Yeah. Uh, uh, all manner of entertaining ways. 
And I realised, at the end of the day, I remember calling up uh, Joe Kirby and asking, uh, and just, with the two of us were talking to Sue, and giving me a lot of good advice about what was going on in his school mm. and how to deal with it. And a big solution, I realised I came up with the system, and the next day, a, a big, um, a big important thing that was now in place was, in response to a student being defiant or worse, there was now an action I could take in response. Yes. And prior to that, I realised that what I experienced and what I felt was a complete sense of disempowerment. Mm. And that is um, a a very uh, vulnerable thing to feel and nobody should ever be made to feel entirely disempowered, Mm. least of all someone who is expected to serve as a figure of authority in a a school system. And by... By backing head teachers who are prepared to um, take a tough stance on behaviour, I think it's a strong message. I think it's an important message, and I think it's one that teachers need to be aware of as well. So that they're this is another thing I've experienced: the senior leaders who push the responsibility for discipline and behaviour down onto the classroom teachers. It's on you to use your behaviour management yes. strategies to maintain yes. behaviour. If your lessons are sufficiently well planned, then yes. you wouldn't have behaviour problems. Absolutely appalling. Um, I heard not long ago um, a teacher who um, she had told off a child for misbehaving, um, shouted at a child for misbehaving, and then the conversation that's being had between the senior leader and the child is about how the teacher shouldn't have shouted at the child. Terrible answer. It's exactly the wrong message. Even if you think, yeah. even if as a school that is your policy, which I'm prepared to respect that you have that as a mm. policy. I have no mm. strong feelings either way on whether or not people should be shouting at children. It can go well. It can yeah, go terribly yeah. badly. But if you want to have that as your policy, fine. The message you send to the child is, this teacher is right. Mm. You are wrong. Yes. You need to apologize, and that needs to be rectified. You can then have a quiet conversation with the teacher sure, about sure. how, if that happens again, I would like you to behave in this sure. way rather than that way. That sure. is how we do things at the school. I think if you do that, teacher's happy, teacher's empowered, mm. child knows that they're not going to be able to go over their head and yes, get absolutely. somebody else to do it. Absolutely. Um, so we, we, we need, yeah, we, and it, it's important that Amanda's saying, backing the head teachers, this isn't teachers alone aren't responsible for behaviour in a school they are responsible for enforcing what the head teacher has has put in place but ultimately the responsibility for behaviour in school has to lie with the head teacher and with their senior team and it goes back to what Michael Wilshaw was saying about good head teachers being ones who aren't just locked up in their office all the time they're on the corridors they're getting a sense of what's going on yeah it's important and that's difficult because if you're undermined as a teacher that's bad if you're undermined as a head teacher I don't know what I would do I mean maybe I'd figure it out I guess some of them seem to but uh, it it feels tough. Absolutely. How did you feel? The other big one, and Laura mm. picked up on this, the grading. Um, yeah. Sticking with the four-point grading. It was interesting, though, wasn't it? So she was very clear, sticking with the four-point grading, she said that she toyed with a simple pass-fail, mm. but she didn't like it for a couple of reasons. One was parents. Parents like the four-point grading because they like to get mm-hmm. a sense of how well a school's doing. I could understand that. But the bit I found quite... But now I think about it, it kind of makes sense is that teachers actually like the four point grading or head teachers mm. because it's then not as high stakes because it's not the case that you either pass or you fail and failure is a disaster. There's almost kind of, well, there is a grading to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What, what was your take? Um, I, it's clear, so I'm currently still feel as though I'm in favour of like a, a pass fail right, type system. Okay. 
Um, and so I say that now with, uh, with, with a lot of respect for the fact that obviously Amanda Spielman as head of Offset has just spent the last year or more uh, working with teams of people sure. thinking about this and going through a process of being very open to that yes, as an option yeah, 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 yeah. and eventually concluding you know what it's if nothing else it's not right yet yes so I do respect that um, I just haven't personally been like had all my thoughts or, or feelings on it uh, sort of sated so I'm not uh, convinced it personally that it's uh, still the right way to go she did say we'll keep it under review as, and I suppose the reason why I'm not so first of all there's there's a lot of Yep, teachers like it. Polling suggests that um, uh, parents prefer it, that um, other people were lobbying for it to be kept. Mm. And I think there was, um, and Laura asked, but there seems to be a sense that people wanted to go. Uh, I don't think Amanda really said this in uh, response, but we could credit that perhaps it's a vocal minority yes. who are saying it should go. Yes. That might be the case. Yes. Um, so that's fair. Um, so then this becomes a sort of leadership followership question uh, for example parents might like it because they think it's giving them more information about mm. schools but is it really um, or is it obfuscating or is it sort of stopping you from digging into data a bit more doing a bit more work and making a more informed judgment than you yes. would otherwise you know what this one's outstanding these two are good I'll pick that one mm. uh, when maybe that's not the that's, right call yeah that's a good point so there's maybe that um, it's less high stakes well is it? I mean, maybe it's a minority of schools. Maybe it's not that the RI becomes fail. Maybe it's that only that unsatisfactory becomes fail, and mm. that's already fail. Mm. Um, so it's not necessarily the case that it's more high stakes. And there's the question, well, what are you doing with it? Because, and this is what Amanda said right at the start, really keen for Ofsted to be, um, did I know down her exact words, a force for improvement. Mm. And, okay, so what does that look like? What does that mean? Because you could have schools that are passing but then what they're being asked to do to improve is is different and again that could be in the report and maybe you'd get more information from the report if you're reading into all these things as well maybe um but most importantly i guess i worry about what the current system does do and it, it right now even if a school is um is good. It's pushing for outstanding, so it can become exempt from offset improvements yes. and, and and market yes. itself as out, as outstanding, and it does become a, a marketing tool for schools. And I don't know if offset grading should be a marketing tool for schools. I'm not sure that's what their role is. Mm. So, for all those reasons, I still am feeling like a pass fail system can work. Um, that probably plus some other stuff you've got to then ask well what do we do with the schools that yes. pass what does that mean what do the reports look like yes. how do we still get information to parents mm. um, and, and so forth I, I think there's a way that, personally I think there's a way that it can work having probably not spent anywhere near as much time thinking about <laughs> this as Amanda sure. has over the past year and a bit uh, but that's where I am on it that's super well with the smell of burgers and sausages wafting over us it's they are, prob they? probably time to wrap this up well Chris hopefully you're going to be back tomorrow for some reflections yes. on day two I'm looking forward to it um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak to us at the end of a busy day I found it fascinating I know the listeners will as well so hope everybody enjoyed that one we'll be back for day two tomorrow so take care of yourselves it's bye from me it's bye from Mr Bolton bye bye take care <laughs> see you in a bit <laughs>